Welcome to Raging Chickens Friday Politics Roundup. It is May 26, 2023. Uh, if you want to know why I'm speaking so slowly, um, I'd like to know the answer to that too as well. But here we are, here we are. Yes, uh, a weekend to remember um, the fallen uh, who have lost their lives as part of um, um, their service to America on this Memorial Day. <laughs> um, and as much as it is a weekend um, that a lot of people celebrate, have picnics, uh, enjoy, go away on vacation, <clears throat> the day is not one necessarily of celebrations per se. It's uh, more of a, a more solemn occasion to remember those folks who have lost their lives in <clears throat> combat and one of these many wars they have. But <clears throat> be that as it may, uh, looks like it's going to be a fairly nice weekend, and I wish you all uh, a good one. <clears throat> Um, so anyways, uh, yes, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly here on state national politics. You can help support this show, becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and become a patron today. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Yes, and if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on, and leave a comment to let folks know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show and shine a light on the folks that we, you know, amplify in this place. And with the uh, school board elections fully underway, do not let Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and, and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pact to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. Putting small dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can help you get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And we'll have some uh, information on um, some upcoming discussions about that pack and uh, how we can best utilize that in the coming coming week or so. On today's show, as the U.S. US inches closer to defaulting on its debts, reporting suggested the Biden administration and House Republicans are closer to a deal and the Biden people seem to be looking for ways to soften the blow of their cave, <clears throat> as we were kind of expecting. <clears throat> All the talk about using the 14th Amendment to basically get this off the table and uh, not sacrifice uh, working people and the poor and people with disabilities and uh, our schools and... Nope. <clears throat> nope. 
My partisanship is a cult. Speaking of cults, Ron DeSantis officially announced that he's running for president on Twitter. Well, sort of. The planned announcement went through a Twitter live audio broadcast, uh, but it went really badly, really poorly. It went completely horribly awry as Elon Musk once again demonstrated how he's basically wreaked havoc on the platform. <clears throat> uh, but maybe just par for the course for DeSantis, you know, bring in the autocratic clowns, I guess. And an Indiana medical board has reprimanded a doctor who spoke publicly about providing abortion services to a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. The case is one of the first such stories to emerge in the wake of overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer. Um, and Ohio, at that point, had banned abortion after a heartbeat could be detected. And that's where we're on the six-week level. <clears throat> it's a crazy story. And Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the right-wing extremist group, The Oath Keepers, was sentenced to 18 years in jail for his role in orchestrating the January 6th violent attack on the nation's capital. Climate scientists are bailing on Twitter after Elon Musk took over the platform. They're reporting growing hostile environment, increasing levels of racism and sexism, and bots that are pushing climate misinformation. <clears throat> this is something that we've been noticing too as well, we've been telling you about. <clears throat> Texas approves a bill that will allow public schools to replace counselors with uncertified chaplains, because God. And a mom for liberty is working to have Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hill We Climb, banned from schools down in Florida on the grounds that it is not educational and contains hate messages. You remember Gorman. She, she read her poem at Biden's inaugural. <clears throat> Talk about hate. Just these moms for liberty people bringing the hate on anything that they don't like. And we'll get into that a little bit. And on the flip side of the book banning fight, the Education Department's Office of Civil Rights has released findings saying that a Georgia school district's removal of library books with black and LGBTQ content may have violated students' civil rights. So that course, that's going to actually kind of move forward an investigation. We'll see if that ends up in court um, at the, you know, and if it does, get ready for another Supreme Court case. And closer to home, a new reporting by Ali Shaw and Little Sis, we learned that the lobbying arm of Big Oil, the American Petroleum Institute, has spent nearly $1.8 million in Pennsylvania to push its interest. And Ali's actually going to be coming on the, back on the show. She's been on the show before. Ali's going to be coming back on the show on Out to Coop Live on June 12th to talk about her piece, so we'll look forward to that. And a Bucks County judge has issued an injunction against Republican operatives, uh, operatives excuse me, who were distributing fake sample ballots for Region 2 of the Palisades School District during the primaries. Yep, so I uh, can only imagine what antics will be uh, they'll be bringing to the table come this fall. And Penridge School Board member Ricky Chaikin turned to a Facebook parents group to issue a lengthy paragraph challenge screed defending the board's shift towards extremism and discrimination. In it, she makes it clear that fellow board member Jordan Blomgren had been talking with Hillsdale College's Jordan Adams well before Adams started his for-profit consultancy for Million Education. Talk a little bit about that and let you hear a little bit about what Ricky, Ricky Chaikin had to say. And uh, just a couple kind of cool things. Perkis's Farmer's Market opens on June 3rd. I cannot wait for that. I'm very, very excited about that. And Penridge Democrats will be hosting a fundraising trivia night on Thursday, June 8th at Free Will Brewing. You can check out their, check out their Facebook event page for details, um, and we'll talk a little more towards the end of the show. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. 
and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And be sure to check out Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House, and they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast at Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast by Bucks by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michalako, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. And Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. You can check out that podcast at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com, or you can pick it up wherever you get your podcast. Um, and this past week, uh, I hope people have been checking it out. Um, um, uh, Christina Ellis uh, and Ben Hodge on. Um, they were both, uh, the, the Ben Hodge was the teacher, and Christina Ellis was one of the students that was involved in the uh, kind of student, student faculty rise up. Uh, resisting book bans in uh, Central York School District. Uh, they were successful in that. That's an ongoing struggle. Um, but they had some great things to say about uh, the need for teachers and students um, to speak out um, and to uh, draw a line of say, yes, we're going to defend civil rights. So uh, do check that out on buckscountybeacon.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for all you gamers out there, The Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, and kids get discounts when they get A's in the report cards. We're almost at the end of the year. It's almost the summertime. Get there. <laughs> Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at The Game In. That's with two N's. Got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. A shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff and follow his YouTube page. And check, check him out on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man, again with two N's, that's at Song of Day Man on Twitter. Uh, let's see what we got. We got, oh, I wanted to bring this up. I can't believe it's not up. Wait, there it is. There it is. There it is. <clears throat> okay. Uh, and out to coop live I already mentioned this already, um, that we've got some bunch of kind of potential guests in the mix right now. <laughs> so for the coming weeks, so I'll announce them as soon as, uh, as soon as they come. I was hoping they'll, they'll let you know what we're going to do on Monday. Monday's a little tricky because it's Memorial day. So, um, I'm not sure how we're going to do that. We, I might just be me again here. Um, just to kind of quick check in, or we might look back at some other things. I was thinking about taking a little bit of a deep dive into this piece by, uh, where did I do with it? Um, there was this excellent piece that uh, was broadcast, or I'm sorry, was republished in The Beacon um, called How Far-Right Groups Like the Oath Keepers Are Exploiting Climate Chaos. So we might actually uh, spend some time um, just talking a little bit about that piece on Monday, um, but I'll let you know. Um, it's a it's a fabulous piece, um, and um, originally published in Grist, and um, why am I having trouble here? <laughs> uh, originally published in Grist, and it's, it really, I think, has some important messages for uh, how we're thinking about what's happening in terms of extremism and kind of the coming climate crisis. So we might talk about that on Monday. 
So everybody, look, we want a progressive future. We need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media and the movement, the movement and the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. All right, there we have it, everybody. Um, I like I made it to the end of the music. That's uh, fantastic. It's a new, uh, not a new, but it's uh, it's a good thing. Um, yeah, so I hope everybody's doing okay today. Um, it's the weather has been amazing the past the past few days. Got a chance to get out there and do some yard work and some gardening. Although my allergies are kind of knocking me out. Um, they have been all week. I know the pollen counts really high and all that kind of stuff. At least in our area, <clears throat> so. Um, We'll see how it is by you. Hope you're having a decent weekend. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the kind of news, like especially cable news and major outlets of news right now, are very very focused on the you know these kind of uh, debt ceiling negotiations, if you will. Um, and you know, look, we haven't we haven't we haven't covered this uh, a ton on this show, in part because. <clears throat> The drama is unfolding on pretty much every news op- outlet you can um, you can ask for, um, <clears throat> and I, I I you know I mentioned this a little bit on the show um, on Monday that you know I tend to get a little frustrated <clears throat> around these things because it play they consistently pl- it, it consistently plays out in a very predictable manner. Um, is that you know. Unless we're going to do something different, we're going to continue to repeat the same cycle, right? I don't see the Biden administration doing anything different here, right? So then we're going to repeat the same cycle. And so let's just run through what the cycle is, right? Is that the Congress passed this kind of debt ceiling thing years ago. Um, Debt ceiling is not, there's nothing constitutional about it. There's nothing that is, you know, says in the constitution that we have to have a debt ceiling or all this kind of stuff. It does say in the constitution, however, that the United States will not default on its debts, right? So we'll always pay its debts, right? So this whole idea about having a debt ceiling to begin with is a, a constructed crisis, Right. It comes out of the austerity politics of this neoliberal politics of this kind of like the end of big government kind of, you know, politics that um, wants to kind of pretend that the federal government is a kitchen table. Right. And that we should all be like scared about the debt because we know that if our kitchen table in our household that we were in debt, then um, that would be a continued drain upon the the, the household and you eventually could kind of go, go, go bankrupt. And so you have to tighten your belt and cut your spending and blah, 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 <clears throat> right. Or get a new job. <clears throat> Sorry. Although they don't, they don't normally talk about getting new jobs, right? They talk about over here, but as we have said on the show a thousand times is the federal government is not a kitchen table. The federal government does not operate by the same principles as all of us as individuals do. Right. The federal government issues its own currency. Right. That's why we have what is called in this country a fiat currency. Right. And basically what that means is the government can kind of print any money that it needs. Right. Now, there used to be these worries. Right. Um, And there's still concerns. Don't get me wrong. 
But there was these worries that um, from the 1970s, this was a big deal in the 1970s, when the governments, not just the United States, but Japan saw this and all this, there was um, <clears throat> crashing the economy. They were having some problems. So they just started printing more money, right? Just randomly, kind of. And that's not exactly true. But <clears throat> let's just say, kind of, they started printing money to cover debts, right? And started doing that. And then what eventually happened is that because more and more money was being kind of issued, right, so that people had money, the inflation skyrocketed, right? Because the, the money became worth less, so prices were more, that kind of thing, right? And so Japan famously was like, you know, people with wheelbarrows full of money and all this. And this is still the logic that dominates Washington politics. Um, the Republicans have figured out about how to use it in their own uh, how to use it to their advantage, right? And the Democrats are still bought into that kind of problem. As we have seen um, in in other economic visions, right? Uh, in particular, the kind of modern monetary theory, um, but it's not just that, right? I mean, modern monetary theory kind of, I think, describes the problem particularly well. The only time that, well, if you print money to cover your debts, right? The only time that that results in lots of inflation is if the money is not being put towards productive use, right? And by productive use, I don't mean like, are they, are, are those people buying, uh, you know, beer with it? Or are they kind of, you know, investing in it? No, I don't mean it like that. I mean that the money actually has to be invested in things that are actually going to kind of produce needs for the society, right? So if you look at what happened during the New Deal, right? You had the Depression, right? You had all these kind of government programs where the government just funded it. Right. And it didn't cause massive amounts of inflation. Matter of fact, it put a ton of people to work. And why not? Well, because the, all these new programs and all this kind of borrowing and all the spending right, was going into productive work. So, for example, we saw the, 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 the Forestry Service right, go out and kind of like, like make trails right, in national parks right, for hiking and all this other kinds of stuff. It was real work. Build cabins, right? That you have, you know, we have right in Pennsylvania, right? These cabins that were built during the kind of Works Progress Administration, where that was, you know, people were put to work. Young people who would have would have been out of work because of the depression, right? They would not have, they would have been idle hands, as it were, right? Um, they had these opportunities to go and work and kind of build this stuff, get paid a living wage, right? Um, get paid well, right? And, ha and actually do productive work that would not have been done otherwise. Why? Because it's productive work that is not profitable, right? So that's the same thing. If we were to build out infrastructure, right? If we were to build out, say, the railways and things like this, that would be productive work, right? That is not profitable in a for-profit capitalist society, right? But nonetheless, if you spent to do that, that would not cause inflation, the only time is if you, you kind of like over, over, you know, you, you overdo it and you actually kind of say you're going to do all this stuff, but then you don't do it. And you just release all this money. It just goes there and whatever, because the private contractors won't do this. No, but the federal government did it directly. Anyways. So the federal government also has the ability to do this thing, right? There's this kind of, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of things. One, the 14th Amendment, which has been getting some discussing discussion of late, although the Democrats won't pull the trigger on it because of whatever decorum, right? Forget like the impact on working people, forget the impact of uh, the, the cuts and that's going to devastate it. Forget our, you know, climate dystopic future. No, forget all that stuff. Decorum is really the important thing. Bipartisanship, the cult of bipartisanship is more important than all this other stuff, 
right? You know, the, the, the you know keeping decorum of the bipartisan decorum is more important than actual people, in particular working people or poor people, right? It just I mean it's whatever it's disgusting. So we so but because the Fourteenth Amendment said the United States pays its debts, right? Janet Janice Yellen. Right, has basically been saying, okay, look, we can just go ahead and we, we let's, let's just do it. Let's just pay the debts, right? And the Biden administration won't do it because they're well, a court would have to we'd have to figure all that stuff out. No, 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 no. The way you play this game of politics, right? And I don't mean politics in terms of like the bullshit maneuvering. I mean the way that you kind of exercise power in a way that is kind of conducive to providing kind of an efficient government for the people is that you go ahead and you utilize the 14th Amendment and then you force it. Yes, if they're going to be sue you and all that, then you play it out. But then it becomes clear where the sides are. Joe Biden says, look, you Republicans, you had all those massive tax, tax cuts again and again and again throughout history. This goes back to the 1980s, right? That's one of where the debt got all built up. It's wars and tax cuts. That's the primarily like where where the kind of like the 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 debt comes from. But what the Republicans do is that you know this is where I say they they've figured out how to use the debt really effectively. So what they do is they do these tax cuts, right? Which we've been all lulled into kind of a way of thinking about taxes that is kind of like oh everybody hates taxes, so we want low taxes, low taxes, low taxes, because we think about it as a burden, right? Because the taxes that we do spend increasingly don't go towards things that help us, right? They go to we don't know. Right? That's the logic they want to do. Once a government, this is like Bill Clinton saying the era of big government is over. That's what he was talking about. The idea that government can't do good things for people, right? That was what, you know, Clinton bought into the, um, Bill Clinton I'm talking about here. Well, Hillary too, but Bill Clinton in particular bought into the kind of, you know, free market stuff that was ushered in by the rate the, by the, the Reagan revolution, right? 1980s. And then we are taught this for generations now that, you know, the government is bad and the government is inefficient and the government is and all this other stuff. So what, so what the Republicans do when they get in, we're just going to cut taxes for the rich, right? Because cut taxes is good, right? A capital G good, right? So that decreases the amount of revenue that comes to the federal government, right? And that increases, therefore, the proportion of the budget that is, you know, goes toward paying like Social Security and Medicare and public schools and things like this, right? Because not because all those other things have grown exponentially, it's because you've taken away the revenue. And, the, you know, so Republicans do this consistently. Take away the revenue, take away the revenue, take away the revenue. Then Democrats get in power and they basically say like, oh, boy, we have to spend within our means. We have to have a balanced budget. We have to do all this other kinds of stuff, which is just the flip side of the same coin of austerity. Right. This is like what Hillary Clinton famously said, right, during the um, during the, the primary against Bernie Sanders. Right. Is that, you know, Bernie keeps promising everyone a pony. You can't have a pony. <laughs> right. Right, the idea you can't have good things. We can't have good things. Right? We can't think big. We can't think about what government can do. We can't think about how to providing for our needs. No, no, no. Not like every other other nation or the other developed there's no no, we can't do that. The only thing that we can spend on with with you know without any problem apparently is war. Right? We can increase like military spending kind of infinitely, but not nothing else. Nothing else that actually helps actual people. We can invest in things that kill people. We can't invest in things that help people directly. Right? So that's, that's your deal. Right? 
But if we just look at that for a second, we know that just as a sidebar, like the fact that Republicans have no problem whatsoever in spending money for the military shows you that the issue is not whether or not the government could spend more. It's like they are choosing what they want to spend for. And we've, we've compartmentalized out these categories. So anyways, so we get up to this. And so Republicans figure out we're going to pass this balanced budget thing. And we're going to kind of have a debt, uh, a debt ceiling so that Congress always has to vote on whether or not to increase it. So the Republicans go through and they pass these massive tax cuts, right? That causes kind of an increase in the debt, right? And then we have this manufactured crisis over the debt ceiling, right? Why is it manufactured? Because they already agreed on their spending priorities. All we're doing now is we've got the bill in the mail, right? And we have to pay what we've already spent. But then Republicans come back for that second bite of the apple. They basically say, okay, not only do we kind of like, you know, take care of our rich folks, you know, our donors, not only do we do that, right? And look, lots of Democrats are on the board with that. Not only do we do that, but now we're coming back, we're going after those things we don't like. So we're going to use the same dynamic just on the other side of it, right? We're going to spend for tax cuts. Now we're going to come back. And then we're going to kind of go after those programs um, that we don't like, that help the poor, right? That help the historically disadvantaged, that help the disabled, right? That provide medical care, right? To increase the quality of schooling, all that stuff. And this is the dynamic again and again and again and again. So pardon me if I'm not all worked up about this in, in terms of the drama of it. Because the negotiations themselves are based on a, 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 a not only a fabricated, right, but a false and dangerous premise. That, that is that we have to negotiate over these things. So one, you either use the 14th Amendment or you do the other thing. The other thing that can happen through the Federal Reserve, you can mint, as they say, the trillion-dollar coin. It has to be a platinum coin, right? But you basically say, here you go. We're going to mint this, and this is going to basically be a $2 trillion coin, and we're going to take care of $2 trillion worth of the debt in one fell swoop. Because in reality, that is all this debt is. It's a thing on the ledger. So all you do, you mint this coin, you wipe out that on the ledger, and then you're done. And I've been trying to get somebody on the show, right, to talk about this, this modern monetary theory to kind of so that we can understand how we've been misled for so long through these austerity politics where to the point where we even accept the arguments, it seems at times, that we can't have good things. That somehow the United States is so extraordinary, so exceptional that we have to let people die on the streets and starvation, that we can't take care of the elderly that we have to force our, our students like who go on to college to take on like I I incredible amounts of debt just to have an education. All the other countries, you know, kind of industrialized countries, kind of like and non-industrialized. I mean, seriously, it's like it's well more than just like, you know, Europe, the United States. It's going across the world. They've, they've, they don't have these problems. But we are so exceptional that we can't possibly do that. I mean, it's just, it's just whatever. So the more I talk about that stuff, the more I get frustrated because it's like, you know, um, I feel sometimes like you just, you're talking to a wall. 
right? And then the, the Democrats will use every, the Democratic leadership, I should say, will use every kind of excuse for not taking bold action. And that just, in my view, that is a failure to do the basics of your job. Right? The basics of your job is that you have to, you have to argue for something. Right. There's been increasingly reporting over the past several days about how people are kind of getting more and more frustrated, particularly in the House. Democrats in the House are getting frustrated with the Biden administration because it's like McCarthy, the Republican, you know, Speaker of the House. He's out there every day talking press conferences, talk about how Biden is like the problem and all that. The Biden administration basically they like leak selective information here and there with these kind of like amorphous general statements about what's going on. And it's like, OK, and the people in the House. Right, even Hakeem Jeffries, who's not exactly a kind of like you know lefty, you know, he's out there. He's even basically, uh, well, what are we going to say? I mean, how are we going to? We don't even know what's going on in those deals. So how the hell can we actually, you know, make an argument? It's just frustrating. I mean, it's like you know, this is the worst possible thing. And you know, again, it's probably even more frustrating when it comes to Biden because. You know, he basically, we're not going to negotiate with these, like, economic terrorists, right? That's where they start from. And so you, you get your hope up just a little bit. Oh, God, maybe for once and think they're not going to let the Republicans get away with it again. And here we are a few weeks later and find out that was just a bluff. And then they're going to cave. And they're going to tell us some story about, well, this is what we had to do, a bipartisan, bipartisan cult. we got to keep the cult together. The bipartisan cult's got to stay together. So your bipartisanship is with the people you said were economic terrorists just a couple of weeks ago. So you're basically making deals with terrorists is what you're telling us, right? I mean, whatever. I mean, whatever. So I thought I'd just take a little bit of time to talk about that because I've had some questions about it that, that have come up from, you know, people have kind of raised, hey, you're going to talk about the debt crisis. And like, you know, I've just kind of, not because it's not important. It is super important. I mean, if you want to like hear somebody who's got everything right to say about it, follow Summer, Summer Lee. Summer Lee has been awesome on this. But I just say, you know, it's just the kind of thing that unnecessarily gets me worked up because I, I, feel, I do feel defeatist about it. I do. I admit it. And that's not, and and that is, I'm not suggesting you should, <laughs> right? But in terms of why I don't, haven't been including that as kind of like, you know, the blow by blow, what's happening today and what's happening tomorrow, blah, 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 is because of that. But in other news, I think, you know, we're, we're finally kind of getting to see the, uh, uh, everybody been waiting for Ron DeSantis to throw his hat in, basically saying that he's going to run for president. Now he did. You know, it's supposed to be this big deal on Twitter that he's going to sit down and with Elon Musk and talk about his candidacy and all this. Um, you know, Twitter's got this live audio kind of tool that it uses. I don't even know what the hell they call them. Um, and, and it just completely collapsed, right? So people got on and then they, people couldn't get on and the stream went down and they couldn't talk. And then they're gone for like an hour and there were like hundreds of thousands of people that were there and then a whole bunch of them left and whatever. And they tried to cover it over by saying, hey, you know, yeah, it's because so many people were interested, and that's how it tells us about, about our campaign and blah, 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 blah. Um, <clears throat> so it was just a big thing. And, you know, yes, we get the schadenfreude moment to kind of say, aha, look at DeSantis. He can't even do that right. You know, not only does he, is he impersonable and he can't talk to people, and it's like he's weird, he can't look people in the eyes and all that, um, but he can't even kind of have his announcement go right, right? I mean, believe me, I partook in that too as well. I just thought it was hilarious. 
right? But, you know, as Mother Jones is kind of, uh, I think, rightfully putting an um, eye on it, they've got this great article by uh, Pima Levy in um, kind of the latest issue of Mother Jones called Ron DeSantis is all, is all In on Creating an American Autocracy. His plan to outflank Trump would scale up calculated system of repression that he designed in Florida. Um, I think that's 100% true. Um, it's a great article. Again, I have it linked in the show notes. Um, but again, it's Mother Jones. Ron DeSantis is, is all in on creating an American autocracy. Uh, I'd highly recommend it and checking it out because I think that's the mindset that we've got to approach this with. Um, you know, like the media seems to be kind of more interested in uh, looking for easy ways to make fun of like, you know, the autocratic clown that is uh, Ron DeSantis. But it's the same problem that that the you know the mainstream media has in terms of what it did with trump right the idea that you know somehow we can just like laugh at them and that's going to make them go away right no like clowns embrace the laughter <laughs> they embrace the hatred right um and it's really kind of points to this this deeper question right which again one of those themes that we follow on the show consistently is about the rising autocracy right and the challenges of democracy um, what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida, let's remember, he won Florida, the governorship of Florida, by 19 points. Right? And you could tell me, you could tell me to your blue in the face that, like, well, that doesn't translate to the rest of the country. He's horribly unpopular in the rest of the country. I, okay. You get, you, but you, if you're telling me that, you're basing that argument not on facts, but on a whole series of assumptions, just like as I'm basing it on, on my, Belief that DeSantis uh, will will see if he has legs or not once he kind of gets out there. Um, that may be that this is a dangerous campaign, right? I'm basing this on assumptions, but one of the things that I think is absolutely is actually critical is that we don't automatically assume for the beginning the way that this is kind of the way that he fumbles over things, the way that this guy can't like look people in the eye and he's got campaign um, people giving him messages. Make sure to sound be personable, all that kind of stuff. Don't get distracted by that thing, right? I, and know that, look, just what happened, same thing that happened with Trump can happen with DeSantis, or it might happen with Trump again, right? This is why one of the reasons why we keep on coming back to this, this whole idea is that the problem of the Trump bad man narrative that has been crafted in kind of, you know, I think MSNBC, right, has been um, kind of, right there with it, crafted in kind of the leadership of the Democratic Party. The idea that Trump bad man is a good argument is not, it's not sufficient. Is it important? Yes. Trump is a horrible individual who did devastated, um, brought in devastated policies and will continue to do so. Is he a threat to take this election? Yes, he is. Right? There's no doubt about that. But the Republican Party as a whole has followed and prepared the groundwork for this kind of autocratic shift. Right? Remember, it was not Donald Trump who in 2010, 2009 actually, came up with the whole red maps to basically take over state legislatures so that they would be prepared when the new census figures came out to redraw all the lines in state legislatures. That was the cent that was the core group of the Republican Party to disenfranchise voters systemically. That was not Donald Trump who did that, right? The Tea Party and the billionaires who funded them, who took over the state houses, in, state houses and the, 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 um, the federal government, right? 
in 2010. That was before Donald Trump. Those are the things that are important that we remember. Right? So DeSantis, I think, is just deathly serious, right? Not because he's a serious person, but because he is another one of these autocrats, and he has shown that he's willing to do it. It doesn't matter if he's a brilliant strategist. It doesn't matter if he's like he really believes this stuff in his heart or not. He's done it. Whether it's for personal gain or political gain or it's because he really just hates people, that's almost irrelevant because he's willing to do this for power. Right? And you're going to have two people on the stage in the Republican uh, primaries, Donald Trump and, um, and uh, Ron DeSantis, who are going to basically looking to kind of out-fascist each other, which is going to pull the rest of those candidates, right, into that fray too as well. There'll be one or two, most likely, who will kind of basically say, we need to be more moderate, and they will not last in the Republican primary. That would be my prediction. So what does it mean? Well, always back to the organizing, right? Always back to the work that people are doing at the, at the local level, right? I mean, at the kind of way to build up power locally, right? To kind of build up, you know, whether it's you're talking about at the school board level or whether you're talking at the state candidates or whether you're talking about kind of preparing for um, the presidential election. All that stuff is what we got to be prepared for. Now, if you have any questions about that, well, let's look at what's been happening. I mean, let's, let's, you know, here's some good news, I guess, right, on, again, the, and the reminders of who's there, um, you know, the kind of people that we're talking about that have been supporting this kind of turn towards autocracy, right? So Stuart Rhodes, right, he's the founder of the right-wing extremist group, the Oath Keepers, which just sentenced to 18 years in jail for his role uh, orchestrating the January 6th uh, violent attack on the nation's capital, right? So it was a great piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Right, um, kind of going through and kind of documenting this. You know, he was the first one that was uh, the first person convicted of seditious conspiracy in that attack, um, and he's the first one basically to to receive the punishment. Or actually, he's the first person who's convicted to receive his punishment. Right, and it's the longest one that's been handed down so far. Right, and that's all a good thing. Right. Um, the judge actually said in this, right, um, I'll read this from the, from the Inquirer. In a, first for the January 6th case, the judge agreed with the Justice Department that Rose's action should be punished as terrorism, which increases the recommended sentence under federal guidelines. That decision could foreshadow lengthy um, sentences down the road for other far-right extremists, including former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio, who've also been convicted of the rarely used charge of seditious conspiracy. Right, before announcing Rhodes' sentence, U.S. District Judge um, Amit Met, uh, Mehta described the defiant Rhodes as a continued threat to the United States and democracy. The judge expressed fear that what happened on January 6th could be repeated, saying that Americans will, quote, now hold our collective breaths every time an election is approaching. Quote, you are smart, you are charismatic and compelling, and frankly, that's what makes you dangerous, the judge told Rhodes. The moment you are released, whenever that may be, you will be ready to take up arms against the government. Rhodes did not use his chance to adjust, address the judge uh, to express remorse or appeal for leniency, but instead claimed to be a political prisoner and criticized prosecutors in the Biden administration um, and tried to play down his actions in January 6. I am a political prisoner, and like Donald Trump, my only crime is opposing those who are destroyed, uh, who are destroying our country. 
right? Another Oath Keeper, um, Kelly Meggs, um, he was sentenced uh, to 12 years behind bars uh, for seditious conspiracy. Um, he did say he was sorry, so maybe that's why he got 12, uh, uh, 12 years instead of 18. But these are significant prosecutions, right? I mean, at the very least, we can say um, that we are seeing this level of seriousness being taken, at least by the, uh, the Justice Department. Now, of course, this stuff will be appealed as it goes down, but this is a really big deal. Um, that's a good thing. Um, on the other side, we can see what happens now when the, the result of what happened in the Supreme Court. Right? We have the Indiana Medical Board reprimanded the doctor who spoke publicly about providing an abortion to a, a 10-year-old Ohio rape victim. Right, you recall this is one of the stories that really I think I think just like ripped apart people's guts when they heard this story. Now, again, let's be clear: is uh, there like feminist abortion rights advocates and stuff were basically saying this is what will happen? Right, this is what what will happen if if Roe v. Wade is overturned? Right, that we were going to find out all this, and then sure enough, we start finding the story. Right. So that 10-year-old, she was a rape victim, right? And she was in Ohio, became pregnant. And because Ohio passed a ban on abortions, basically passed the six-week level, she was going to be forced to carry that child to term in Ohio if she did not find an abortion. And so she had to go to Indiana. And so this is Dr. Caitlin uh, Bernard, um, in Indiana, she basically uh, spoke to the press about it, about this case. She didn't she never use the child's name. She never talked specifics about this stuff. Um, but just, again, exactly the kind of thing that's been predicted, um, that um, there was going to be now intimidation against doctors. So uh, in Indiana, um, <clears throat> let's see, who was, who was it that brought it? Who was it? So, bah, 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 bah. so the Indiana Attorney General, um, Todd Ro Rokita, filed a complaint against the doctor in November, basically saying that uh, violated, um, kind of vi made these kind of three charges, right? Um, and then two of the charges um, that were found not to be, um, she did not violate the laws requiring physicians to immediately report suspected child abuse. She did. She did report it, and she and to keep abreast of mandatory reporting of patients' privacy, the privacy laws, and she did that. She was not found there. However, she's uh, she's fined three thousand dollars in a letter of reprimand. Um, she will continue to be able to kind of practice medicine. This was done by a board. This was not like a legal filing. But the complaint alleges that Bernard violated patient privacy law when she discussed the case of the girl without the consent of the patient um, or the guardian, even while not using her name over the summer of the Indianapolis Star. The disclosure of why the Ohio girl made her medical journey to Indiana days after the Supreme Court, I'm reading this from CNN, sorry, uh, Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and ended the federal light, right to abortion and helped make Bernard part of the national debate over abortion rights in the country. Bernard told CNN last year that she provided abortion services to the child in late June and the, child, and the girl traveled to Indiana for the procedure because Ohio, after the Roe ruling, generally banned abortions after early cardiac activity is detected, which is around six weeks of pregnancy. So again, what does this mean? Right? So now we see again creeping autocracy, 
right? Um, the kind of like suppression of, of women as equal citizens, right? Or people get pregnant, be pregnant as equal citizens. We see further repression and threats being made against medical staff. And so you got to ask the question, right? So you have this woman, um, this doctor, who Bernard, Dr. Bernard, who basically spoke out, was willing to say this is, this is these are the real consequences. There's going to be other doctors who are not going to be as forthcoming, who are going to worry more about their job, right? And then they're, you know, say, okay, you know what? We're not going to talk about these instances. We're going to kind of keep them below the radar so people don't know that's actually happening because they're afraid to lose their jobs. They're afraid of a $3,000 fine, or in some cases, they're afraid of actual criminal prosecutions in some states. These are like little pieces of evidence in the puzzle of like, of, of what's actually going on. Another piece of that puzzle this is a good, again, a smaller piece, right? But you can start seeing how this stuff all works together, right? The climate scientists are bailing on Twitter after Elon Musk took over the platform, right? Um, scientists are like, not only are they finding increasing amounts of harassment, right? They're finding there's been um, a bunch of um, um, bots that have been basically just going after them, right? So this is from Al Jazeera, and here's a quote. Scientists suffering insults and mass spam are abandoning Twitter for alternative social networks as hostile climate change denialism surges on the platform following Elon Musk's um, takeover. Researchers have documented an explosion of hate and misinformation on Twitter since the Tesla billionaire took over in October 2022. And now experts say communicating about climate science on social network, of which many of them rely, is getting harder. Policies aimed at curbing the deadly effects of climate change are accelerating, uh, prompting the rise in what experts identify as organized resistance by opponents to climate reform. Peter Gleick, a climate and water specialist with nearly 99,000 followers, announced on May 21st that he would no longer post on the platform because it was amplifying racism and sexism. Right? Down a little bit further, inauthentic accounts can be uh, identified as analysis tool uh, by uh, analysis tools such as Bot Sentinel. Replies from apparent trolls or bots increased 15 to 30 times over a two-month period compared with previous years. Um, quote: Before October, my account was growing. This is uh, um, from uh, scientist uh, Catherine Hayhoe. Um, Before October, my account was growing steadily at a rate of at least several thousand new followers a month. And since then, it has not changed, she said. Andrew Dressler, professor of atmospheric sciences at Texas A&M, says climate communications on Twitter are less useful now, given that I can see that my tweets are getting less engagement. In response to almost any tweet considering or containing climate change, I find my notifications inundated with replies from verified accounts making misleading or misguided claims. Glaciologist Ruth Motram I had more than 10,000 followers on Twitter, which she left in February and joined the Alternative Sciences uh, Forum powered by Mastodon. Right? It's really a kind of revelation in many ways. It's a much quieter, more thoughtful platform. Right? Michael Mann, a prominent climate scientist at the University of Pennsylvania and regular target for abuse by deniers of climate change, said he believed the rise in misinformation was organized and orchestrated by opponents of climate reforms. Quote, I've seen a huge rise in trolls and bots and many target tweets of mine for attack. The professional trolls manipulate online inf uh, environment with uh, strategic posts that generate conflict and division, leading to a feeding frenzy, he said. Then this goes on. Right? Now, again, you say, okay, well, what big did you get off Twitter, right? The point is, is that Twitter had been a space for the dissemination of this kind of information. 
yes, there had always been the back and forth. There's always been the kind of like the, you know, the trolls and the bots are saying that this is, has increased to the point where we're seeing climate scientists leaving that space, right? Because of the kind of attacks and the other part of this, right? Because the algorithm has been changed such that these kind of posts about climate science are not getting as much engagement. It's a little thing, but it's a big one. Then another one. Let's keep it keep it rolling, right? In the same vein, Texas lawmakers approve a bill uh, to allow school districts to replace counselors with chaplains. Hmm. Now that's interesting. Counselors with chaplains, right? This is from the Washington Post, Michelle Bornstein, right? So a Texas House of Representatives Wednesday gave final approval to a bill to allow uncertified chaplains in public schools, including to replace professional counselors, right? The last step before the measure is signed into law. The bill, which now goes to Texas Governor, uh, Governor Abbott, came, into, uh, uh, came in a session of aggressive legislative measures, measures in Texas and several other states aiming to weaken decades of distinction between religion and government. Supporters say they believe the Supreme Court's last ruling uh, last summer in Kennedy versus uh, Bremerton. Remember, that was the high school football player that wanted to kind of like pray with uh, players and basically said, nope, he could pray. He could do that in public school, public grounds, all that kind of stuff, right? So that bill was basically passed. Um, and now here it is. The Senate also passed a bill that allows school districts. Oh, no, that's that's a different thing. Right. So. That, that's the kind of stuff that's going on, right? So you're basically taking out trained professional counselors, right? They're working with students and you're going to put in chaplains, right? Because you know what happens, right? Just think about what we've been talking about here in Bucks County over uh, the book banning and the kind of anti-LGBTQ policies. You start putting in chaplains and you guess who, which chaplains are going to be put in by these kind of right-wing school boards that have taken over school boards. They're going to be ones who are also going to be anti-LGBTQ, Right. There are going to be ones that think that women have their place and men are more important, right? You're probably going to have kind of these Christian nationalists that are going to put in there. They're going to be kind of bringing their kind of white supremacist ideology into these counseling sessions. So now you've, you're blocking off yet another space in which kids, right, have access to kind of care, right? And instead, they're going to be met with dogma and ideology. Exclusion, silencing. It's remarkable that this is where we are. And then we got another one, right? Amanda Gorman's Amanda Gorman's poem, right? You remember this? Of course you remember this. Of course you remember this. The hill we climb. Amazing, amazing poem she gave at Biden's inaugural. It was beautiful. So Amanda Gorman uh, tweeted out this week. She said, so the parent who got my inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb, banned for elementary students, it's in Florida, I believe, yet Miami-Dade's school district, has ties to white supremacist organizations. Anyone surprised? Miami-Dade County, this is a shame for the children of your school system who deserve to have access to poetry. Right? This is reported initially in the Miami Herald. Right, that the, the parent, basically the parent's name was Daly Salinas, complained about written works at her children's uh, K-8 through school in Miami-Dade uh, County. A school committee determined that Gorman's poem, quote, The Hill We Climb, um, and three other titles were better suited or more appropriate for older students and should be shelved from middle school section of the school center. Uh, the other titles are The ABCs of Black History, Cuban Kids, and Love to Langston. Right? 
get it, right? All because everything they're dealing with kind of uh, racism, right? We're going to ban all that stuff. She said, no, we don't want those. Those are not appropriate for kids. So she cited, she basically said, this Daily Salinas basically said that um, uh, Amanda Gorman's poem, right, was not educational and that it indirectly contains hate messages. And she cites two pages of the poem of this. I'm going to read them in their entirety entirety, right? This is page 12 and page 13 in the printed poem, right? So this is, these are the two, these are the two pages that she says contain hate messages. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace and the norms that notions of what just is, isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. Right? You can, you can hear the hate, right? <laughs> but that's what, I mean, that's the kind of crap we're talking about. So there we have the School district banning that, right? So you, anybody who says this is not, this is somehow got about educational, somehow protecting the kids is just lying. And that mom, right? Daily Salinas, right? Yes, has been found to be working with Moms for Liberty. Right? She is another mom for liberty. Right? And this is what she does. There's a great piece uh, I was reading from Nelson before. This is from the readout blog, um, which was pretty good by uh, Jahan Jones. Um, basically says, you know, originally kind of like uh, he was a little skeptical about, you know, people talking about, you know, you know, all this money behind conservatives and blah, 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 blah. Um, but then is finding out. Nope. Here we go. Moms for Liberty. Right. That kind of white supremacist Christian nationalist organization that is kind of running kind of like is the new Republican hot ticket um, was behind this one as well. So, I mean, you know, these are the folks. This is why when you hear Moms for Liberty, you have to think immediately Christian nationalist white supremacists. Right. These are who they are. Right. They can say all they want about being alone. This is why, again, one of the reasons why we keep on coming back to Moms for Liberty and, and, and focusing on this. Right? This is why we had Catherine Joyce on to talk about Moms for Liberty again. Right? Why we have Alyssa Bowen on the show to talk about this kind of history and the money behind this stuff. Right? To break the chains in our own brains. Right? Um, when somebody says, oh, we just care about the kids. And realizing that they're using that to manipulate us. Right? So, there you have it. Now, on the flip side of this, too, as well, I'll say this was good news. The uh, Education Department's Office of Civil Rights has released findings saying that Georgia school district's removal of library books uh, with uh, black or LGBTQ content may have violated the students' rights. Uh, the big question is what happens now. Um, as reported in the Washington Post, uh, I'll kind of read this, like, this little bit for you here. So the Education Department's Office of Civil Rights released its findings in a letter Friday, wrapping up an investigation into Forsyth County Schools' 2022 decision to pull nearly a dozen books from the shelves after parents complained of titles, sexual or LGBTQ content. To resolve the investigation, the district north of Atlanta agreed to offer supportive measures to students affected by the book removals and to um, administer a school climate survey per the letter. 
Forsyth School spokeswoman Jennifer Caracciola Caracciolo wrote in a statement Monday that the district's implementation of the department's recommendations will further our mission to provide unparalleled access. Blah, blah, blah. So they're doing that. However, right now, I'll read a little bit further. The outcome of the Georgia case could affect how administrators in other school districts and states manage uh, book removal requests. It comes as the county faces a uh, historic rise in attempts to pull books. I'm sorry, the country faces historic rise to pull books from shelves of libraries and classrooms. The majority of such challenges, which began to spike shortly after the coronavirus pandemic ignited culture wars in education. I wouldn't say the coronavirus pandemic ignited that. I would say right-wing activists and right-wing money ignited it. Anyways, but the target books to deal with race and racism, LGBTQ character themes, American Library Association, and free expression um, advocacy group, Pan America. So this kind of goes on. And one of the things that's kind of important here, right? So they may kind of offer, the, the, the department says, okay, we, we, we found that these may be violating their civil rights. But notice that the, the, the result here is not that the books go back, right? It's that we're going to have supportive measures to students to do this. So what does this mean? The books still remain kind of out of the library or kind of we're going to say like, oh, were you hurt by those books? Let's talk about why you're hurt, but you know, you still can't read it. Right. I mean, this is, you know, this is where the kind of the lawsuits have to move forward. So you have an educational finding that's good. We know this is also happening in the Central Buck School District. Right. That's important to have that finding. But then I think it's going to take really kind of lawsuits before we're actually going to be able to um, get a resolution of this. Because, look, simply saying, oh, were you hurt by the fact that you're, you know, that you were being attacked um, and you're being silenced for being LGBTQ student? Oh, OK, well, let me talk to you about that as opposed to saying, no, forcing those books to go back on the shelves. But it is what it is. And it's something. It's something. It's a positive, right? It's a positive that there's at least some, that, you know, the wheels of justice are moving in a positive direction in some places. Okay. All right. I'm going to take a quick, quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening here, um, kind of right here in the PA area. Um, in, uh, like I'll say, I'll say, um, we got, I'll talk a little about Ali Shaw's piece, uh, to set her up for when she's coming back on the show. Um, we're going to talk about what happened in the Palisade school district, um, about these false ballots. And then we're going to hear about, uh, Ricky Chaikin, um, basically giving up the goose as it were about how long, um, this board was working with Hillsdale college to overturn, um, the social studies curriculum in the district. Um, so anyways, so this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raise Your Chicken. We're going to be back right after this quick break. We'll see you then. All right. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1824. That day was the first time when women workers in the United States left their jobs and walked out on strike. It happened at the Slater Mill, part of New England's rapidly growing textile industry. The textile mill had been built in 1793, the first of its kind in the United States. Soon, other mills were built in the area. In the early 1820s, new watered power looms transformed the industry, bringing machines into the process of making cloth. The mill owners hired women to work on the looms. This was because the mill could pay young women less than men. Then the Slater owner decided to cut women's pay by 25%. At the same time, the mill expanded the workday by one hour for all workers. 102 women walked off the job and into history. They were joined by men and children workers from the mill. 
Other local community members and farmers supported the strike. Many in the area resented the mill and its dominance of the local landscape and economy. Soon the Pawtucket strike spread to eight mills. The strike lasted for one week, and then the mill owners agreed to compromise with the workers over wages. Women workers had shown their power. Ten years later, hundreds of women textile workers in Lowell, Massachusetts, followed as they went out on strike. Today, Slater Mill is a museum. In 2014, the site hosted exhibits called The Mother of All Strikes, commemorating the women of Pawtucket and the role of women in the labor movement. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yes, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, here back again, want to remind you, you can help support the show by heading over to Patreon.com slash RC Press, where you can become patrons for as little as five bucks a month. Help support all the great work we do around here. Um, here, yeah, so a couple things uh, kind of a little bit locally. Um, we have, um, <clears throat> yeah, as I, as I mentioned kind of before, when we talked about upcoming show, I uh, did want to give a highlight to this, um, that um, we've got this great piece that came out uh, well, a few days ago, right? Uh, came out on the 20, 22nd. Um, great piece by Ali Shaw called the American Petroleum Institute loves Pennsylvania and it's lobbying shows. Um, and in this piece, she's basically go, based upon kind of um, records that were made available through um, open secrets, um, kind of donations and stuff like this. Um, the oil and gas industry, right, um, is, as we know, is one of the most powerful industries in the world. <laughs> right. And its lobbying arm is one of the most powerful in uh, American politics. Right. And this is, becomes that much more important to recognize as um, they are going to be the big, one of the biggest obstacles to any kind of climate action, right? So I'll give you just a little bit of flavor of Ali's piece, and, and then we're going to talk, like I said, we're going to talk to her on June 12th, uh, where we can kind of dig into this report um, and her reporting a little bit more. But um, from the piece, the oil and gas industry is one of the most powerful um, interest groups in American politics. According to Open Secrets, oil and gas corporations spent over $125 million on federal lobbying in 2022, on top of the $11.8 million spent on federal campaign contributions. These figures highlight the industry's influence on a federal level, but the top oil and gas industry lobbying group in the United States, the American Petroleum Institute, has also made state lobbying a priority with some success in recent years. While all states have different reporting requirements for lobbyists, state lobbying reports make one thing clear. Pennsylvania is a key focus for the oil and gas industry. In fact, at least $1.8 million was spent in 2022, and the American Petroleum Institute reports spending more, more money on lobbying in Pennsylvania than any other state last year. Right? This is why I wanted to have her on the show. Right. Um, because this is the phenomenal reporting. Um, again, this is uh, remember we had her on the show before um, she's working with little sis, um, you know, get it, you know, instead of big brother, you got little sis, right. Um, doing just absolutely fantastic investigative work. Um, so we're going to have her on the show to kind of talk about this, but this is like, you know, yeah, I mean, again, yes, it's one more thing on our table, right. But it's the same table. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, right. Is like, you know, 
we, we talked about this on the show on Monday is like, you know, one of the one of the strategies from the kind of the Trump people. And we saw that one uh, school board director out in Colorado saying that we got to try to flood the zone. You got to throw so much stuff at them. They don't know what to do. But, you know, in some ways it's all the same thing. Right. It's all kind of autocracy, corporatocracy, right? You know, it's like, you know, on the one hand, you've got this, all these moves that are being made, the attacking of LGBTQ stuff, um, the, the, the attack to get raped, it's all under the umbrella of kind of, you know, kind of Christian nationalist turn, extremist turn within the Republican Party and that dominating our politics, right? So each one is an expression of the same thing, right? And I think the more that we bring it back to that, this is this, this is the same Arc. So what we're learning, I think, you know, are the contours of that, where they're kind of making next moves and things like this. Um, but it's one thing, right? So when we're making an argument against it, yes, obviously, we have to do the hand to hand combat against book bans, for example, right? But we have to make the affirmative argument, right? The positive argument, the argument, the assertive argument, right? We have to argue for a different vision, right? Which is not Christian nationalism. Because if we just target the book ban, as an example, right, everything else is just going to keep on coming. Then we're going to fight the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But we got to go after the source, right? I think that's kind of the key. This right here is, you know, again, what is the biggest threat to the planet? <laughs> and that is clearly climate change, right? And so what are the biggest obstacles to that, right? This is one of them, right? So we have the way things are now, if we do nothing, or we do too little, there's going to be devastating effects on kind of like tens of millions of people. Right? So we know that that's, that's just a fact. And then we ask that question, well, who's standing in the way? Right? Or who's not acting enough? And this is kind of one of them. And so, you know, this is, this is one of the knowledge is power type of things, right? To kind of actually see the fact that Pennsylvania is being targeted, that should also be the indicator to us that this actually has to be an issue in any upcoming election, right? This may not be an issue on the school boards, although I think it should be. I think that actually climate science and client action should be taught in schools. That's me personally. I also think that every school building that has a flat roof on it, right, should have solar panels on it, right? <clears throat> That's absolutely, you know, has to be. Elizabeth Fiedler's uh, kind of solar in our schools, or, or, or solar schools or something like this. Her bill just passed, right? That's basically to increase the ability for schools to have get access to solar panels on their school. This was actually concrete action on climate, right? So when Elizabeth Fiedler, right, and others, I mean, but she, this is her lead on the bill. When Elizabeth Fiedler is going to do that, that's the kind of stuff that we need to kind of, you know, expand, Right. That's the thing in the school districts that we say we want our schools to be part of this stuff or have access to this. Or if our schools are not included in that, then we want to kind of add that on. We want to expand that legislation. Right. And we know that now we know, thanks to Ali Shaw's reporting here, that Pennsylvania is being targeted by the oil and gas industry um, to promote its interests. Right. It sees the writing on the wall and it's going after here because Pennsylvania is a key state. So want to put that on the kind of like you know, on the radar of everybody about this repeat uh, about this report, you're going to be kind of seeing me release more stuff about Ali Shaw's um, upcoming show. I look forward to, I cannot wait to talk to her about it. I mean, she was great the last time she was on the show. I look forward to talking to her again. So um, um, more on that coming soon. All right. Um, the other thing that happened now, somebody, 
you know, <clears throat> listener had uh, sent me information about this before, <clears throat> right? Um, folks up in the Palisade School District had said, hey, check this out. Uh, there was uh, someone circulating fake sample ballots um, during here. And, uh, of course, Jenny Stevens, once again, on the case, um, kind of reporting about how in Bucks County, a GOP activist handed out fake ballots during the primary election. Right? <clears throat> So here, I'll read a little bit from Jenny Stevens's piece. This was published just yesterday on the Bucks County Beacon. So Bucks County Judge Robert Mellon issued an injunction that ordered Republican operatives to stop the distribution of fraudulent Democratic sample ballots at poll locations throughout Region 2 of the Palisades School District during the May 16 primary election. Local residents Tom Cochran and Milo Morris were each served a copy of the court order. Cochran's PAC... Just Concerned Citizens, was also named in the complaint filed with the court. According to Kim Barbaro, Nakamixon Democratic Committee, um, Committee person and founder of the Palisades Democratic Association, Cochran began aggressively distributing illegitimate ballots, sometimes referred to as goldenrods, shortly before 8 a.m. shortly before 8 a.m. on um, uh, primary day, 16th. Goldenrods traditionally contain a political party's endorsed candidates. <clears throat> quote, he positioned himself outside the Nixon polls with two sets of fictitious ballots, unquote, said Barbaro, who is also the deputy director of Red Wine in Blue, Pennsylvania. He was misrepresenting the public Republican Party as well. The phony ballots eliminated the names of two Republican school board candidates, Karen um, Beerer and uh, Saul Ramos, who had cross-filed and appeared on the authentic ballots for both Democratic and Republican parties. Cochran's counterfeit ticket encouraged Democrats and Republicans to vote for one candidate. Instead of Breer and Ramos, the only name appeared on Cochran's propaganda, Kathleen Genter, outstanding, and this is what it said, outstanding, parental consent, fiscal watchdog, high economic standards. We ask that you only vote for Kathleen, the flyer read. Barbara immediately contacted the Bucks County Democratic Committee and spoke with Executive Director Ava Bosco uh, to report the activity. And went from there. So we see this as a tactic. And, you know, again, part of the idea here was that not only um, that they had used, they had basically taken this slate of candidates because several of these, um, uh, you know, again, school board candidates can cross-register. They can register, um, they can get on the ballot for Democrats and they get on the ballot for Republicans. Because generally uh, these tend to be, you know, people in the neighborhood, people will sign petitions to get them on either one. But so basically what they did is they uh, took the Democratic list of votes, right? <clears throat> and uh, basically took out the Republicans, right? Uh, two of the Republicans, but they wanted this one school um, school member, Catherine Genter, to do that. And they basically took the ballot and instead of having the little uh, uh, Republican signs on it and things like this, they changed it to say Bucks County Democrats and they changed the elephant to the donkey, right, uh, which is kind of illegal to do and mis mis uh, misleading, right, um, as a way to try to push their conservative Republican candidate um, to win on the Democratic ballot as well, therefore pushing one of the Democratic candidates off, <clears throat> right? So there you go. So we expect more of this coming forward too as well where we're going to see at the local level, through local PACs, this information from the Republican side. Okay. 
Um, so one of the things I just want to spend a, just, a, just a bit of time on here for the PA stuff. I won't keep you too much longer today, everybody. Um, but, you know, as you know, one of the issues that we've been talking about in the Penridge School District has been the uh, their decision by the extremist members of the board um, to uh, hire Vermilion Education um, to rewrite the K through K through 12 social studies curriculum. Vermilion Education, as we have said, um, was founded by a guy by the name of Jordan Adams. Jordan Adams was formerly of Hillsdale College. Hillsdale College, right, is that kind of right wing Christian conservative um, uh, school that has been pushing a K through 12 curriculum that is based on this kind of Christian nationalist kind of like, you know, American exceptionalism um, kind of agenda, right? They've been shopping that kind of around in different districts. Um, Vermilion Education, right? Um, Jordan Adams left, left Hillsdale College um, last year at some point and then founded a for-profit consultancy called Vermilion Education where he's going to kind of, you know, try to do this independently. So the nice thing about Vermilion is that if you're, uh, you know, your name is now Vermilion Education and not Hillsdale College, then you could try to dupe people a little bit, right? By saying that, no, we're not, we're not, you know, Christian conservative, Christian nationalist uh, organization. We're just uh, trying to help people out, right? They tried it in Florida. Sarasota School, uh, School Board uh, rejected um, Vermilion Education because they knew what was going on. That's in particular because one of the heads of Moms for Liberty uh, is now running that school board. So people kind of got, figured, they figured out what was going on pretty quickly. And there was a big pushback here in the Panridge School District. <clears throat> because you have an all Republican board and um, them, they're willing to do whatever they want, right? Uh, regardless of what the public say, um, they were able to push it through and get Vermillion Education, um, <clears throat> a contract with Vermillion Education. Right. Even an all Republican board that was still split five, four. Right. The majority being the kind of those those right wing conservatives that uh, that are dominating everything. <clears throat> right. We've talked a little bit about Jordan Blomgren, um, about her comments at the last board meeting where she basically said, hey, look, this is what you voted for. Right. We've taken that apart. There's a video available. We clipped out that's available on our on our um, on our Web page. I'm sorry, on our YouTube channel. Um, that's been circulating around. Um, and then we find out that uh, Ricky Chaikin, who was relatively silent at that board member, our board meeting, which is uncharacteristic of her. She's usually the one that comes out and says, like, hey, the schools are teaching to not love America. We want every kid to love America. That's kind of what her thing is, right? She is that she repeats that, like, you know, whatever. Um, but apparently she has been uh, that some of the criticism that has been coming out both in the news media and among parents who've been showing up at school board meetings seems to have kind of like she hasn't been able to put that out of her head. Right. It's kind of living rent free in her brain. Right. So she felt she had to find some place where she's going to respond to this. Right. Where she's going to kind of issue her screed. And uh, <clears throat> in this like. Lots of, say, paragraph-challenged kind of prose. Uh, that, see those little bold things? Well, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you're not going to see it, but I bolded out certain areas. Um, those bold bolding was not in the original, <laughs> okay? <clears throat> um, I did that from my own rep just to try to, and I actually included more spaces in between paragraphs just so I could separate out the kind of, like, blocks of prose in front of me. But anyways, um, enough about the superficial details there. Um <clears throat> This one thing is one of my hobby horses with my own students, actually. It's like I always say, you, you just because, like, you know, because they're taught in schools to only have five paragraphs, right? Oh, I just wanted one, two, three, 
four, five, six. Oh, she's got seven. <clears throat> but paragraphing is not simply just like, you know, okay, new topic, and then write two pages of blank, of text with no breaks in between. No, you know, it's also a signal for your readers, so that's easier for them to engage with it, blah, blah, whatever. Um, that's a whole other issue. <clears throat> Someone who teaches writing, I, these things matter. So, um, so she's responding to a few things. One, if you recall, we talked about this on the show too as well, that there's been um, some supervisors, there's curriculum supervisors who are basically being targeted for elimination. And this has happened... Um, in the aftermath of hiring Vermilion Education for here. Um, and <clears throat> she's saying this is not the case. So I'll just read a little bit of what she says so you hear her words. Right. So, so one of the things, and she posted this to a, a, a Penridge Parents Facebook group, right? So she says, after saying, I don't believe social media is a good place to do this, but here it is, right? I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so she says the supervisorship, no supervisors have been eliminated, right? Of course. She, I mean, again, the technically true. This is not true. It hasn't happened yet. They are not fired yet. Right. But that requires a public vote and all school board directors know that if any school board director claims otherwise, then I don't think that they are being honest or they seem to be grossly unaware of procedure. Like says the group who's basically not informing the rest of the board about decisions that are they're going to have to be voting on and steamrolling things through there. Okay, but whatever. I am going to share my personal background regarding this as well as the actual facts surrounding the school board. Since I have been on the board, I have heard other board directors, parents, and teachers periodically express concern that supervisors are not a good use of money or the best support for teachers or students that our admin is bloated. Right, again, no evidence just say, I have heard a few, you know, so she tries to give the impression. This is what they always do. Tries to give the impression. Oh, there's been like a wave of parents who are rose up and said, this is not the good. No, actually, most people have no idea that these school, how the internal functionings of curriculum development work. It's only people that are looking to take control over the curriculum. Teachers have talked about how these Folks, right? These these curriculum advisors are extraordinarily helpful. Of making sense of all the kind of like the regulations and how we have to do the, all this other kind of stuff, right? To help and guide and through to making sure that you're structured curriculum. But anyways, when I first heard this, I did not agree or disagree. I had no strong opinion because I knew little of it. Right? Exactly. Recently, the topic was brought to my attention, and finally did, and I finally did some research. How about that? And now I believe that it's a conversation that should be had. I will share information I have found at the next public meeting. On May 8th, in executive session, Jordan Blomgren attempted to present some of her findings and concerns to the full board and Dr. Bolton. Board members screamed at her, stood up and stormed out, and never looked at any information that she offered. It appeared to me that some board members did not want to have that conversation. The following week, board leadership had a conversation with Dr. Bolton in an effort to be very fair to supervisors and advise him to notify them that this was going to be an upcoming conversation. This was to do two things. One, not have supervisors found out this was a conversation piece for the first time at a public meeting and to let them know if any or all of the positions are eliminated, there are other positions that would be offered. They would be offered. It also gave them the opportunity to apply for different administrative positions. They are open if they... Do not want to wait for the outcome. All school board directors were advised of this prior to the social media frenzy. We will meet publicly um, to discuss the issue and we will vote publicly. Clearly there is misinformation out there. No, no. These people were told this. 
about the potential to eliminate their positions. And that's what generated it, right? So it wasn't as if like people were responding to something that the board did. The board had these behind the scenes conversations. And then some members of the board were presented with this, again, brought out of the blue, attempting to do this in the wake of hiring Vermillion Education, recognizing that this is like a deep problem. And then people finding out about it and then responding to it. And now she's like, oh, that's not how this goes. But they know. She's like, no, of course we're going to discuss this in public. They're going to do the same thing. Right, because they have the majority, because they have a five-four majority on this, they're going to go through and they're going to run it, ram this through. And again, notice all her language. <clears throat> some parents said, <clears throat> "I did some research." Oh, this might not be the best. This is all these general sweeping statements that are designed to kind of divert us from what's actually they're doing. They're taking away any other opposition to the, insti the instituting of the curriculum that they want, the Christian Nationalist Curriculum Advisors from Vermilion Education. I mean, this is plain. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go through all this stuff but because it's like it's way too much. But I do want to highlight one other one. This is the, and this one is, I think, the more, the more important piece. The more important piece here is about it. Per, she provides, and again, she's not doing this for this reason, as far as I could tell. What she's trying to do is make an argument for Vermilion, right? Make an argument that, oh, this was all above board and all this. But inadvertently, what she does to all for all of us is she shows us the timeline of how long they were planning this, right? In particular, how long Jordan Blomgren had been in conversations with um, uh, Jordan Adams of Hillsdale College, then Vermilion, Right to figure out a way to kind of use Penridge as a test case, right? As a lab. So we can all be lab rats for them to institute the Hillsdale curriculum, the Christian nationalist curriculum. So here we go. <clears throat> so under the Vermillion says, so, okay, just so you know, it says when BCC ran, right? That is Blomgren, Batiki, I guess, Cullum, or no, Chaikin and Cullen, I guess would be the three, right? These are the, the four, they're the four that were kind of the, um, you know, the, these kind of the extremists that are running things at this point, right? Um, although, um, it's interestingly enough, uh, Christine Batiki has been kind of left out of some of these conversations, which is interesting to me, but whatever. So when you hear BCC that they're talking about <coughs> the right-wing contingent that's controlling the board right now, that's what they mean. When BCC ran, we were abundantly clear that we'd not see the value in DEI and to bring back a heavier focus on civics, right? Again, they said we were going after DEI from the beginning. I believe we are moving in the right direction. When Jordan Blomgren um, became curriculum chair, she immediately stepped up to make sure our promise of better curriculum with a focus on civics was kept. We publicly discussed pulling in Hillsdale curriculum for social studies. Remember, Joan Cullen was the one who introduced this the first time we saw this back in January of 2023, right? So that means that they have been thinking about this before then, okay? <clears throat> so Jordan, as curriculum chair, and Megan Bannis-Clemens, as board leadership, began to meet regularly with admin 
to discuss implementing overlapping the Hillsdale 1776 curriculum into our existing curriculum. So these two school board members are meeting with administration, right? not talking with teachers, not talking with the curriculum, meeting with the administration to strategize about how to begin putting in this Hillsdale 1776 curriculum. Again, this was not being originated by people with education backgrounds that were teachers that were specialists in the area. These are people who are ideologically driven to institute this curriculum. Okay, back to the text. It is a perfectly common practice for a committee chairperson and one or both board leadership to meet with the admin to discuss the agenda item. She's saying that because she recognizes that people like me are going to point to that and say the things that I just said. It happened under our prior board leadership as it happened at many boards before that, blah, blah, blah. During this process, Jordan reached out to Hillsdale College to ask for any resources, support, and guidance that they could suggest in getting started, right? That's a really important moment. When was that, right? When did Jordan Blomgren begin reaching out to Hillsdale College? And what was it asked specifically? The first person she spoke to was with Jordan Adams because he was doing with the curricular stuff. He was the one that was being tasked with pushing all this stuff out into charter schools, right? To shopping the Hillsdale curriculum out to the, all these charter schools, right? That was his job. He was extremely helpful and she would periodically call him with questions. So this was ongoing. After several months of slower than expected progress on our end, she reached out again only to find out that Jordan Adams was leaving Hillsdale and starting his own independent education consulting firm. Okay, check this out. After several months of slower than expected progress. So here's the question. If we start learning about the Hillsdale 1776 curriculum in January 2023, right, and this Vermilion contract was just passed, after these several months, does she mean several months that began in the fall of 2022 when they first decided to eliminate part of the social studies curriculum. Remember that? That's when this first kind of pushback came, right? We started realizing something was going wrong. <clears throat> That's when the social studies teacher showed up at the board saying, you can't do this, right? So were conversations already happening with Hillsdale College at that point that informed their decision to eliminate that, that, um, that uh, one social studies requirement? I don't know. But so she's not specific, of course, right, about when, after several months. So she reached out only again, only to find that Jordan Adams was leaving Hillsdale. Okay, this is also extremely common practice. The claim that he has only four months experience is ridiculous. That was not the claim. The claim was it's a four-month-old company. That was the issue. And it is also true that yes, he worked with Hillsdale College on shopping out their Christian nationalist uh, uh, curriculum. That is not the same thing as being a curriculum specialist that is trained in this stuff. The guy was a graduate of Hillsdale College. He's an ideologue. <clears throat> he has over a decade of experience, enough, blah, blah, blah. Jordan Blomgren inquired about the possibility of using him as a consultant to help us. She then reached out to admin with the good news of having an experienced education consultant to possibly come on board with help for curriculum. That means he's talking to Bolton or she's talking to Bolton ahead of time. So Bolton, the superintendent, is already in on this. He's already included 
in the knowledge that Vermillion education is going to be brought in. So while he's not one of the elected board members, right, he's in the loop of those with those people. Four members of the board said that they were completely in the dark about this before this Vermillion contract got put on the thing. However, Bolton was not. <clears throat> Go on. We received his proposed contract just days before the board meeting, and it was already May, in an effort to make sure this ninth grade class was ready for fall. Fall. They want to implement this this fall. Jordan polled board members to see if there was support to put it on the agenda since it, it was a timely issue. This also happens all the time, many times from admin. Things are added when they come in. There were several times last year under different leadership that were individually polled by board leadership to see if there was support to add or remove something from the agenda. Jordan reached out to all but two board members when emails started flying about it. <coughs> so at that point, there was no reason to continue polling everybody um, since as everyone was aware and sharing their thoughts. Right? The difference is, yes, items come up all the time. Oh, look, there was a rainstorm and the things were leaking and uh, we need to kind of fix it in order to kind of make sure the classrooms are safe. Let's put it on the agenda. Yeah, that, that happens all the time. Months of backdoor, backroom discussions with an ideological driven curricular force that is rooted in Christian nationalism and as a, from a college that openly discriminates, does not accept federal dollars because it wants to be able to discriminate against LGBTQ youth. That's who they hired. Discussions about that were going on for months to the point where they're giving a contract and then there's, oh, it just happened. No, it didn't just happen. This should have been an ongoing discussion in public for months. So whatever. So then she said, there was no surprise attack, ill intent, mystery, or secret. In fact, I was surprised when there wasn't full support, <clears throat> specifically from that BBCCW campaign that includes <coughs> Ron Wirtz, who objected, campaign who vowed to do just that when we're here. Now they're basically trying to say, we were anti-DEI, and so I don't see what the problem is. This is kind of following through on what we did. This is what Jordan Blomgren said right, on that clip on YouTube that we put out there from the board meeting where she says, this is what we are elected to do, destroy the curriculum. Obviously, she doesn't use that word. She says, eliminate DEI and put in kind of pro-America, what she calls pro-America stuff. When Sherry Durr left Penridge, <clears throat> we hired her back as a consultant. There are some interesting similarities to Durr's contract versus the Vermillion contract. Yet Durr's contract approval got no attention at all. It is also worth mentioning that the June 7th, okay, this, this is specifics that I'm not, I, not that I don't want to get into. It's just like, they're, they're trying to basically say, this is the D, I assume this is the DEI contract they're talking about. Somebody who had already been working on this, they decided to hire a consultant here too as well. But as we know from that last board meeting, the thing that the difference was is the admin kind of initiated this. It wasn't a board plan thing that was happening behind the scenes that was being thrown on the district. Okay. <clears throat> They're trying to say because Durr started her own company to do this consulting, so it's the same kind of thing, as if it's not. This is an outsider is coming from Michigan, right, with no familiarity towards a district other than this board reaching out to him to basically try to find ways of strategizing and get the curriculum passed here. <clears throat> let's see, let's see. The rest is just about kind of drawing the similarities between there. 
But there it is. So, I mean, I thought that was really kind of important, right? An important artifact, important document in this ongoing kind of process. Now we got Ricky Chaikin, right, in black and white on Facebook, right, and now printed out in my dirty little hands, right, right here, basically laying out part of the timeline that this was an orchestrated, ongoing effort um, to get this, make this happen, and that. Bolton, the superintendent, was basically part of those conversations, right? And the public was left out of this. And she tries to make the claim that, oh, this is the contract just happened to come at that particular time. Right? So let's just say, let's say the contract came, right? Say the contract came and it comes up here. The appropriate measure, and this is even Joan Cullen, <clears throat> who would probably be supportive of hiring this group, by the way. Joan Cullen noticed that, wait, 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 wait. You have to talk about this ahead of time. You can't just like ask to vote on the expenditures of money, but then go towards a contract with an open-ended contract. No. So if they wanted to be appropriate, <coughs> they could basically put this on the agenda as a, a first kind of point of discussion that here's a contract for people to review that they're going to be talking about it at the next board meeting. Then people would have time, but instead they wanted to ram it down their throats. That is not what happened in the past. So I appreciate people posting that. And I'm glad I have a copy of that now too, as well. I think this would be a great opportunity for uh, uh, ambitious uh, 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 Freedom of Information Act, uh, right to know request uh, to find out exactly when all of this conversation took place. Um, and uh, to find out what Bolton had to say about this, um, how much he was involved in this, um, just very interesting stuff. Anyways, so that's all I got. That's my little kind of burn fest at the end of today's show. Uh, I will I will remark on two things briefly. Uh, one, Perkins Farmers Market opens on June third. Yay! It's an awesome thing. Uh, come down. It's a Saturday mornings. Uh, June third will be the first. Um, will be the first here. Um, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I missed this. Uh, I had my my chat covered. Uh, Jenny basically says the first mention she can find on board minutes about entertaining. An alternative curriculum is October 2021. And that she has an uh, RTK that was denied, um, but it is being appealed. <clears throat> so that is in the works already. Of course, Jenny's already on the ticket. What am I talking about? <laughs> of course she is. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Um, so Perkins Farmer's Market opens on June 3rd. Um, uh, do come out. It's an awesome kind of event. Great vendors, uh, superfood, um, just lots of kind of, you know, all people, family fun. It's going to be great stuff. Um, and the one thing I did want to plug a little bit here is coming up on June 8th, uh, the Penridge Democrats are going to be, are having a trivia night um, at Free Will Brewing Company. Um, and so this is what it's, they have a Facebook event site. I linked it in our show notes. I'll try to remember to do it for our YouTube page too as well. Uh, because as I've said before, is that even though when I publish the show notes on our podcast, uh, the links don't show up on our YouTube right? Um, unless I actually put them in then completely separately, which is always a pain in the butt, but whatever. Um, so um, Penridge Democrats uh, are holding a uh, trivia night at Free Will Brewing Company on Thursday, June 8th from 6 to 9 p.m. Um, tickets, um, starting tickets start at uh, 30 bucks and it's a fundraiser too as well. Um, it says Penn Dems Trivia Night. Uh, we have an incredible, important local election approaching. Come out the spirited night of competition and help us raise money to support our outstanding candidates who are committed to uh, keeping extremism out of out of Penridge. 
Um, you can do so by purchasing uh, tickets for 30 bucks a piece. Um, you also want to want a whole pizza uh, there for 20 bucks, um, you know, as you kind of go on. So basically you go um, to that Facebook page. I'll also put a link to the, um, um, to the Act Blue page where they have, uh, where you can order your tickets. Um, but yeah, um, do show up if you can. Uh, you can also, uh, you know, participate in a lot of fun, right? Um, get a team together, um, come out and participate in trivia and uh, help support uh, Penridge Democrats as we uh, kind of look to, uh, you know, as we all in this community look to uh, push back against the forces of extremism in our community. Um, so it's a cool event. It's a free will brewing, of course, amazing beer and uh, some great people. So uh, do consider coming out on June 8th for the Penridge Democrats trivia, trivia night at Free Will Brewing um, from 6 to 9 p.m. Info on that is in the show notes. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for me. Uh, I hope that you have a good Memorial Day weekend. Um, I know that I'm going to do my best to uh, keep my hands dirty in the garden. Um, and we've got a big kind of garage sale this weekend. And we've got, you know, uh, some planting to do. And, um, you know, hopefully we get a barbecue in on there too as well. So, uh, so thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, thank you for your time. And always thank you for your support. I want to thank to uh, the folks who help uh, push out the show, uh, both on Twitter and also social social media platforms. Uh, the folks that are sharing our, the content, both uh, from our YouTube page and our regular podcasts. Um, and thank for our our amazing supporters, um, who without without whose you know generous support, uh, we would not be doing this, right? So thank you to all our patrons, uh, thank you to our members, and thank you to our supporters uh, once again. And if you want to help support the show, you can do the same thing. You can head out to patreon.com slash RC press, and you can help support us for as little as five bucks a month. Uh, what do you think about that? You know what it's like? It's like being on this uh, moving sidewalk, which doesn't stop. Yes. There's Chancellor Goldstein, Greenstein himself, right? There you go. All right, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, have yourselves a great weekend. Uh, we'll see you on Monday. We're probably going to talk a little bit about, um, uh, far-right groups and climate change. Um, but who knows? Might be something else. We'll soon find out. See ya!